Hey, deserving listeners, I get emails, various emails from agents asking to have different authors on the podcast to talk about their books. And I usually will turn them down, but I got an interesting one the other day that caught my eye. It was a book about quitting. And I love this idea of elevating the act of quitting because I love to quit things that I don't like. I mean, you only live life once and... I say, if you don't like something or if, or if you have a better opportunity, then quitting is one of the best things you can ever do in your life. I mean, some of the, my most favorite moments of life was when I, when I quit, and maybe we'll get into that. So I thought I would have the author on the show to talk about her book. Uh, please introduce yourself to Podcast Land. Hi, my name is Kunora Bahal, and I'm the author of I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up. I quit the life affirming joy of giving up. Tell us more about this idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for making an exception. I, I, I definitely empathize with probably how irritating it is that people are just like throwing their book at you and saying, have me on, have me on. So um, thank you for making the exception. Um, well, for a, for a fellow Seattleite, I <laughs> yeah, can absolutely yeah. <laughs> make an exception. Yeah, I know. Especially grateful for that. Yeah. Um, I am based in Seattle. Um, yeah, so so the book, um, gosh, where to begin? I mean, I'm sure we'll get deeper into it, but the the book is really um, the manifestation of a change in myself that I experienced um, from about my mid twenties when I quit the first big job I had, um, and I I quit after thinking like, oh, I got my first full time job after graduate school. This is what my whole career is going to be. This is what I want to do. And then three months in, I got sexually harassed and that really upended everything I knew about that field. And it really helpfully clarified for me, like what my values were and what I was willing to put up with and what I wasn't willing to put up with. And so I ultimately quit that job. Uh, as most happy quitters will tell you, their only regret is uh, waiting too long to quit. And um, I definitely waited too long and <laughs> tried to do the right thing. But anyway, that really kind of for me symbolized like a, a real shift in my own personality from being this perfectionist, high achieving, do the quote unquote right thing in life at all times person into really having more agency over my life and really understanding that that first big quit of mine and then all the successive quits propelled me forward in my life and got me closer to what I wanted in life, labor and love, you know, more quickly than if I had remained someone who was kind of like, oh, let's just stick it out because it's the right thing to do. So how'd you let them have it? How do you feel in that moment? Did you just say, take this job and shove it? Or, or what did what, you do? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, I love that you asked that question because right now, apparently it's a trend on TikTok of people recording and like filming when they quit their jobs. Yeah. I just saw one where someone was quitting from like Walmart or something Yeah, and they were, uh, you know, they went over the speaker phone and they yeah. said all <laughs> customers of Walmart and to the manager, such and such, I quit because da, 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 da. Yeah. A literal mic drop after that one, I think. And I'm even a couple of years ago, I'm just now remembering before I even knew I was going to write my book. Um, I, someone sent me a, a, a video recording of someone quitting their job and they, <laughs> the moment that they, walked up to their manager and said, I quit. They had arranged for like a marching band to come in behind them. <laughs> and then they were just like dancing this marching band music. And then this person was like, like escorted out in 
high fashion by this marching band. Um, what so was anyway, that? Was that a take this job and shove it? Or was that just like, Hey, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm moving on. No, no, no harm. Cause I could see a marching band being a, a kind of a fun, I could see the manager being like, Oh, that's kind of funny. I mean, I've been, there's a lot of people who have quit before. No one's ever done it with a marching yeah. band or was it kind of sticking it to their face? I think it was a sticking it to their face kind of thing. Ah, yeah. Of like, Look how happy I am to be ridding myself of you kind okay. of, kind of attitude. Um, but, um, but yeah, for, for me personally, um, you know, that moment it was, um, I mean, it was, I look back on it and I, I'm an odd duck, you know, I mean, I think, what I've known just as a woman and a woman of color in the workplace, I've definitely, you know, been around other women who've experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. And of course, like in the aftermath of, um, or the continuation, I should say of the me too movement, I've come to realize how odd I was in that moment when I was like 25, 26 years old in my first full-time job, three months in to my first full-time job after graduate school. And I was my, my, strategy, if you can even call it that, but my instinct was not to hide it, not to keep it secret. The very next morning, I told everyone, I told anyone who would listen, this is what happened. He did this. Isn't that effed up? And because in my mind, it was, he should be humiliated, you know, (laughs) like everyone should know what he did, you know, and then, and then, you know, back to like the organizational decay and dysfunction, you know, I was again, 25, 26 years old. I mean, to tell like old white men, frankly, who are in leadership that, Hey, I expect you to do something. I don't know what that is. That's for you to figure out because you're the leader, but it was very clear to me that they were hoping it would just go away. And, um, but honestly, that is why this person who did that to me was allowed to continue working there because I found out very quickly he'd been doing it for a decade, mm. you know? And um, yeah. And so I, I, I definitely realized that I, I'm an odd person and how I handled it, you know? And um, um, but, but yeah, it really was this kind of like shift for me of, I thought I would work in a nonprofit the rest of my life. I thought I could, I thought I could withstand anything, including, horrible pay, you know, to, um, work for a really good mission, you know, and I think pretty quickly I realized, oh, no, wait, other things are more important to me than Mm -hmm. the mission. So what'd you say? Did you say I quit because y'all didn't, uh, respond in an ethical and moral way to what's happening here? Well, like I said, I didn't, I quit too late, you know? So I, this happened to me three months in and that experience very much colored the next, I would say six months of my time there because they did launch an investigation, which I demanded. It obviously resulted in proving everything and more and the man was fired. Um, But, you know, in that time period, I was very much again, this like, keep your head down, like do a good job, you know, just continue, like don't let this impact you. But, you know, it was impacting me, you know, like I write in the book, I reference in the book how, you know, from that day on, like none of the male leaders in my division would ever be in an office alone with me. They would do like really silly things like grab someone from the hallway to come sit in on a meeting. And I was like, why is this person here? They have nothing to do with what we're here to talk about or about my portfolio. And so there were definitely like discriminatory things that happened, um, you know, because of that. But I was just kind of like, okay, just do a good job, work hard, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was uh, a year later when, you know, the straw really broke the camel's back for me personally, where it's a little complex, but long story short, I was about to be 
sent to the office location where the person who harassed me used to lead that office. Again, he was fired, no longer leading the office. But I was about to spend Christmas and New Year's <laughs> in this developing country, in this office that this man had set up. And through people I trust in the organization, I learned that the rot was pretty deep in that office, you know, and, um, and I, it really just, um, it made me feel like I cannot trust my organization to not continue to put me in harm's way. Mm. I just couldn't trust them to not put me in danger, you know, and that was really like the, oh, I need to get out of here, you know? <laughs> and so um, like, this is not going to change, you know? And I think that was kind of my first taste of realizing that I'm not a change the system from the inside kind of person. You know, I don't, I'm not patient enough for, for that. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so I, I gave my notice and um, talking about kind of quitting stories these days. Um, I, I wish I had done it more abruptly. I instead did the quote unquote right thing and gave them like two months notice. And so I could like complete my job and do a good job. And, uh, but no one cared, you know, <laughs> like, um, no one valued me for kind of giving them extra time, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that was kind of that, that story. And, um, and then, you know, like I mentioned successive quits, you know, I, I really felt like I got, much closer to what I want to do um, because I quit things. So then what prompted you to write the book? And what is your major thesis of the book? Yeah, well, the major thesis of the book is that um, quitting is good mm. uh, and quitters should be commended for their bravery and their courage. Mm. Um, and I think it's really my small effort to remove the stigma and the shame that our society and others, as I've learned, um, place on quitting. You know, that I want to, I want to, portray that, you know, quitting is not a sign of failure. You know, if anything, it's a sign of understanding who you are and what you're willing to put up with and embracing change and understanding things that sound so obvious, such as, oh, I made that choice X number of years ago and it was the right choice then, but doesn't mean it's the right choice now, you know? And so Mm -hmm. what um, kind of uh, propelled me to write the book was both my own kind of personal evolution in terms of, you know, really realizing quitting was a huge benefit to my life. Um, but then also when I started my business, I'm also an entrepreneur. Um, I was going on a lot of, you know, business meetings, you know, with anyone who would listen, you know, after I founded my company and, and, you know, I was on the East coast at the time and what's pretty commonplace there. And I would say in all of America is you meet someone for the first time and you kind of like, verbally exchange your resume of like what you used to do, what you do now, what schools you went to, that sort of thing. And, and I found myself being much more interested in asking people, Oh, why did you leave that job? Or why did you not finish that degree? Or why did you move away from that city? And I just realized my love for quitting stories from those moments and realized how quickly you can understand someone at a deeper level if you ask them about their choice to, to quit something as opposed to just tell me about your successes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I'm guessing in your book, talk about how culture plays a role in this and Mm -hmm. how we in various cultures, uh, including the United States will value uh, sticking with it or Mm -hmm. not quitting or looking down on quote unquote people who quit and shaming it. 
and keeping people in oppressive situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you write about that? Yes. And that came up actually a lot more than I ever anticipated, you know, for a couple of reasons. Um, One, I went into the book assuming that this stigma and shame attached to quitting was an American thing. I thought it was all because of our unfortunate Puritan work ethic, you know, and that sort of thing that this country is founded on. And I, I, because I happened to have people who wanted to speak to me who were from other cultures, I learned that it's not just an American thing. It is really quite global, you know? And um, so that was a real, a real learning for me, you know? And it also, I think in the context of writing the book, um, helpfully forced me to look at both sides of my identity, you know, being American born and raised, but also South Asian, you know, and how both of those cultures, you know, embrace like the achievement for at all costs kind of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, so there's a lot of um, self-reflection for me, but also from the people I interview and whose stories I share on how their society, family, cultural upbringing, you know, impacted what they thought about quitting until, until they stopped thinking that way about quitting. Yeah. As a Japanese American, Mm -hmm. I have a a lot of uh, influence regarding not quitting and sticking with something and not really thinking about yourself and maybe even thinking more about how things look and your family and, you know, your legacy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a generational thing. uh, When I think about my dad and his generation. My dad worked at Boeing for hmm. almost 50 years straight. He get, It was basically his first real job that he got when he was 20 or 21 years old and mm-hmm. worked it until uh, retirement at, you know, in the 60s. And then he continued working after retirement kind of as a contractor. For, so he probably worked total for Boeing for like 60 years or something. Um, and that's what he wanted me to do. Uh, incidentally, my brother is now working at Boeing for, for a decade, <laughs> so he took up that mantle. Um, but for me, I, I've always felt like I don't want to waste my time on this planet and have always felt like I, if I don't like something, it, it's really noticeable to me. Mm-hmm. And I find that other people should do that more often is to occasionally just check in like, is this the life I want to live? Yeah. Is this the job I want to have? Are, are there other options? I was just kind of ranting to my wife in general about this of how people should, should really think about that more. And, and I think there are pros and cons to it, of course, but for me, yeah, I've quit so many jobs and I've had, uh, in fact, I was known in high school for having really cush jobs. Like I had, I was a security guard, but but that, but I was just a fancy name for someone who just sat in a booth for eight hours and (laughs) I could talk to my friends on my phone. I could even, I could bring my guitar or my uh, homework. And I just sat there and got paid a minimum wage for that. And, um, and it was because I would quit other jobs, like, you know, working at Denny's as a bus boy. And I thought Mm -hmm. this is, this is pretty miserable. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I really, in fact, it's timely because I just quit my job as a professor. Congratulations. Uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. And although I, I'm still going to teach at the university part time and I love working with the students, I've always really hated the administrative side of it, the meetings yeah. and the paperwork and the 
I don't know, just the, the rigmarole of everything, you know, the, the tedium of everything. And when I quit, it felt, well, there were two phases. There was when I decided I was going to quit, I felt really good. Yeah. And then when I did quit, <laughs> it felt really good. <laughs> I, I, I want to be clear because I know a lot of students listen to this. I, I, I still love teaching and I'm still going to teach. Yeah. That part of it I will retain and, and, and probably do until the day I die. But, um, but yeah, quitting, um, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the one time I, I said, take this job and shove it. I, I worked at, so I, I had a business degree from University of Washington mm-hmm. and I graduated and I thought I would just be given this job and I didn't get a <laughs> job. And, I was desperately looking for work and this is before the internet. So you're looking in the, you know, the wanted Seattle times, you know, help wanted page and I wasn't getting any jobs. And then finally I just applied to this job opening at Foot Locker and mm-hmm. at Westlake mall. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to sell shoes. This doesn't make any sense. This, this doesn't fit with my, my point of view of myself, but I was, I, I needed money to pay the bills. So I, got, so I took the job and I, at first I thought it was okay, but as time went on, I learned the manager was extremely verbally abusive oh, no. and would work us to the bone. It, so it was him. I remember when you're young to like recognize that because you don't yeah. have anything to compare it to, you know, you think, Oh, this is just what jobs are like, you know? And yeah. Right. Yeah. And I needed the money and I didn't think of myself as deserving to, be treated well. And, but it was just the manager, the assistant manager and me to cover seven days a week. And there had to be two people there at at all times. So, and we were paid purely on commissions, which amounted to like two or $3 an hour in the end. Wow. And so you're always on your feet and you're always trying to push the shoes and you're always trying to, you know, get everyone to buy things and no one was ever buying anything. And I, uh, was trying really hard. And then this one day he just started, I, I remember just staring into his eyes as he was rage yelling at me thinking, I am so quitting this job as soon as I can. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. all I could think of was just like, uh, I'm not taking this, you know? And I think it's evidence of the fact my parents raised me well enough to know that I deserved better than that. And um. so I quit at a convenient time for me, but it was incredibly inconvenient for them because he was going to go on vacation mm-hmm. and he couldn't go on because then it was just down to two people. And, you know, and so he couldn't go on vacation. And um, I mean, I don't know, it's an anticlimactic story, but, but when I quit, it felt really good. Uh, and I, yeah. that's my, when I think about quitting as a wonderful act of justice and self-preservation. Yeah. I think about quitting the Foot Locker in yeah. 1993 at the Westlake Mall in downtown Seattle. I, I love that. I love quitting stories, you know, and I and I hope that my book, you know, like inspires people to like re-examine their previous quitting stories. Because what one thing I learned was that, you know, people don't love even the saying the word quit. You know, it's like I heard a lot of like, oh, I retired or I left that behind, you know, and um it's like, no, man, you quit. You quit. Like you empowered yourself. You made a decision. You made a bold choice, you know, for yourself and what you want out of life. And um, yeah, I was like taking notes while you were just talking because there's it is just so much richness in what you just shared. <laughs> and um, and then the first thing I wanted to say was that I think you really alluded to another kind of, um, you know, goal I have with the book is that I, you know, the, the book and, and my view on quitting is not like everyone quit everything in your life, you know, like quit all of it, you know, like that's not really the, 
the goal of the book or how I advocate for quitting. I think if we can make one shift in each of ourselves, which is like quitting is a choice, but so is not quitting, you know? So if you view not quitting as a choice, as opposed to just like passivity or like living your life with inertia, you know, like, I think you can really decide like, Oh, wait a second. I'm, I am choosing to stay in this situation, this job, this relationship actively. And it's because X, Y, Z about it matches my values, you know? And so, and I also want to underline that, you know, what I do in the book, which is that uh, in many scenarios, including quitting jobs and including uh, quitting relationships, like quitting can be an act of privilege, you know, that not everyone has access to, you know? And so, but I think like for me, like what I really thought through was, Yes, quitting can be an act of privilege, but, you know, we don't see rich, white, heterosexual men quitting all the time either. You know, I I really believe, like, we are all victims of this unfortunate stigma and shame that that quitting has, you know, Mm -hmm. and... um, And the other thing that came to mind is I I had, like, a very similar experience as you, like... I graduated from NYU with nearly a 4.0, couldn't find a job, graduated graduate school from an Ivy League institution, took me six months to get that crummy job where I got sexually harassed three months in and paid nothing. Um, And I think those experiences, as well as what came later, really made me call bullshit on this idea that hard work always pays off. You know, and and I mean that in like a liberating, positive way. You know, I mean that like I think the moment I realized, wait, hard work does not always pay off. It's not like input output. The minute I I lived that for myself, it was very freeing. It was like, okay, well, now I get to choose what I want to work hard at. You know, because there's no guarantee, and I was sold a false bill of goods by parents, teachers, society, culture, everything. You know that hard work alone is worth it because it always pays off, which is not true. You know, and right. I think especially what I learned very quickly in the workforce as a woman of color is that work is not a meritocracy, you know? And so I was like, okay, well then I, I don't want to play that game, you know? And so, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely had a similar experience of like, wait a second, all these things I was told would come true because I was a hard worker and smart and a leader actually ended up being liabilities in the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And the implication is that suffering equals uh, success. You know, like if you're suffering, then it will pay, you know, hard work slash suffering will result in good things, which. Or that that things are only good if you suffered for them. Right. Which is not necessarily true. I mean, certainly suffering can produce nice things, but uh, you, it's not a necessity. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is um, the broader topic in therapy with my clients that I've, I, 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 I'm thinking of a handful of clients that this was a pretty major topic in their treatment was uh, not necessarily the idea of quitting, but the idea of evaluating, is this life I'm living what I want to do? Yeah. And, and a big part for people, I don't know if you ran into this in your travels writing this book, but that I found with working with people is we had to start from a fundamental level of even the question as to whether or not, can I even ask that question? Do I want to do this? And a lot of people haven't been raised in a way that they were allowed to ask that question. And so they have to be trained to just even ask the question and, 
and how to evaluate it. There's so many people walking around in relationships or jobs or situations that are harmful to them, but, and they know they're being harmed and they don't enjoy it, but it never occurs to them. Is there another option or do I deserve better? Or do I want to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, because quitting is the end result of a lot of evaluation and, and self-exploration mm-hmm. based on a premise of, I deserve to at least ask a question as mm-hmm. to whether or not I, I want to do this. And the, the other part of in therapy that I work with clients is, you know, is typically associated with existential therapy, which is you are responsible for building your life and no one else can yeah. do that for you. And especially as an adult. And so what are you doing right now? Cause, and you are making that choice because a lot of people drift through life complaining about their life without ever really sitting. And this is what existential therapists would give to them. You know, not, not, it's not the entirety of existential therapy, of course, but the component is in therapy, putting people in the driver's seat and saying, you're in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. not in everything, obviously, but in, in a lot of things. And you can make a choice. And by not making a choice, you're making a choice not to make a choice. Yeah. By mm-hmm. staying in a situation in which you are suffering, you're, you're choosing that. You understand, like, m- you can leave if you want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, there's privilege and, and you know, nuance there. But, um, and when we are raised in a way or our culture pushes us into a particular mindset, we might not have a assumption that we are in the driver's seat. We have, might have this assumption that we are powerless over our, the entirety of our lives, which is not usually true for everything. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, uh, uh, you know, quitting is like, uh, it's an act of living your values, right? And, or even not, not quitting can be, of, of course, you know? And um, yeah, and I, I do think people have a lot more agency than they give themselves credit for. And it is about agency, you know, and it is about, you know, um, I mean, especially in the Western world, I mean, we have so many privileges, you know, I mean, um, but I think like a lot of what we grew up with tells us that we, that we aren't, that we don't have control, right. That we are resigned to our lot, you know, and um, that we don't have the ability to remake ourselves or reinvent, you know, and, um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned your your father earlier, you know, like my my dad, um, uh, I talk about him a little bit in the book, um, you know, uh, before he retired as a physician, you know, his entire career, uh, never wanted to be a physician at all. <laughs> and um, But he grew up in Kenya under like a British school system. And so when he was in eighth grade, he had to decide if he was going to be like a doctor, a lawyer, or a, I think probably an engineer. He had like three choices. And then from that point on, his entire education was focused on that, you know? And, um, and so I also heard from him like, okay, Betty, find one good job at a good company and stay there the rest of your life. And I just intuitively knew when I was a teenager, I was like, dad, that's not, that's not going to happen. You know, I think um, maybe that was possible for their generation, you know, but not for ours. Um nor did it sound like a life well lived to me, you know, and um, but, it, you know, he you might think someone like him says that because he wants stability or needs to have stability. You know, but I, I talk in the book, you know, I mean, part of his life was 
escaping a murderous dictator in the middle of the night and then needing to leave medical school and finish it in England because of that, you know, and, and, you know, like while someone like my dad maybe um, didn't have a lot of choice, he had a lot of change, you know? And so I think for immigrant parents, especially it's like, Oh, our kids have so much choice. Why are they using it to pursue change, you know, instead of, instead of stability. Um, and so I think that sometimes can be, you know, uh, attention, you know, of like explaining why I am happier to take risks, you know, than, than they are. And, uh, and I, how's your dad feel? How's your dad feel about your career? Oh, you know, I, I'm very lucky. You know, I think like on the spectrum of South Asian parentage, my, my parents are pretty chill and non-interfering and non-controlling. <laughs> so to, to the extent that, um, that they even voice an opinion of my career as a, as a business owner now, um, I think they're, I think they're like, so long as you're making money, we're happy. It's fine. <laughs> you know? And so, um, um, and they, they worry about uncertainty a lot more than I do, you know? And so, um, but, uh, but yeah. And so I think like, it's, it's a lot of this, like, well, why did you move to America if not to give me these choices, <laughs> you know? And now I'm taking advantage of the choices. Oh, and much like you, my older brother became a doctor <laughs> and um, la- later in life after he attempted a couple other things. But, um, but yeah, yeah. And so I think there is this, um, um, this agency, you know, and self-worth, you know, you mentioned that your parents raised you to like, you know, believe that you deserved more. And, um, and I, I can't not attribute my own high sense of self-worth to my parents, you know, I'm sure they're responsible for a part of it, you know, and, um, um, but yeah, it is really kind of valuing yourself. And, and, you know, you mentioned at the start of our conversation, this idea of, this, I, I don't know if it was the exact word to use, but the sentiment of like life is too short, you know, and I, I actually um, I think back to like a year ago, um, you know, I, I divorced my husband last year and um, and I remember having a conversation with my brother, you know, after he heard that I was divorcing and um, and he my brother's a good guy, you know, very easygoing. And he was like, oh, pretty soon in the conversation, he was like, yeah, you know, life's too short to be unhappy. And I instinctively was like, no, dude, like life's too long. You know, <laughs> it's like if we're, you know, again, presuming Western privilege, like I might live into my 90s, you know, based on how my long my grandmother's lived. And I was like, life's too long to be stuck in a decision that's not working for you. You know, and I told my brother, kind of like laughing, we have the same kind of dark sense of humor. I was like, if I knew I was going to die a year from now, yeah, I would have stayed married, you know, (laughs) but like, (laughs) but I'm not, you know, God willing. And so, no, I was like, life is long, you know, I don't want to get stuck in something for that long a period of time. So I kind of have a a different take on the whole life is short. um, Yeah, Yeah, that reminds me of people will contact me being in their thirties or mm-hmm. uh, let alone, you know, forties, fifties. And will say, Oh, you know, I've always wanted to be a therapist and I've been doing this other job and it's okay, but you know, I've always wanted to do it, but you know, I'm too old now. And I'll, and I'll say, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, life's life is long and typically, and no, you're not uh, too old. And I have had students in their sixties who, uh, graduate at, you know, 67 and start a new career as a therapist. And, 
and they might practice for 20 years. So yeah. uh, it, it's, it, it's absolutely. And, uh, and it's just one of those oppressive ideas that I think keeps people down. And again, I'll hear people 30 years old saying that, ah, it's too late yeah. for me. I'm locked in on a career. I'm like, what are you talking about? My, my dad was like that. I mean, I, he was maybe 40, 45 and just being like, Oh, I was going to do this. And like, you can, you're not dead next year in all likelihood. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. I, I think a lot of who I am, is actually kind of like a, a reflection and a rejection of kind of growing up in that kind of mood of, Oh, it's too late for me, or I can't do anything about it, you know, and um, just kind of rejecting that idea for life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want to tell another story about quitting just because it's, um, because it's, it's, we're on that topic. I was a high school student. I was working at Ernst, which was, which was kind of like Home Depot mm-hmm. and I was a cashier and it was not a great job, but it paid the bills. And I was, it was summer and it was like exactly this time of year, nice out, hanging out with my friends. Mm-hmm. And we stayed up all night at this party. And the next morning I woke up and I'd forgotten that I was supposed to work mm-hmm. uh, that day at, at Ernst. And the manager called my home asking like where I was. And my parents picked up the phone. They're like, well, we don't know where Kirk is. So he, he didn't come home last night. You know, I was sort of at that age where I didn't necessarily check in with my parents all the yeah. time. And so my parents start panicking because they're like, oh, he's not home. He's not at work. Where is he? So, th- so they start calling around to all of my friend's parents. So now like there's this whole phone chain going around <laughs> of everyone like, where's Kirk? Where's Kirk? Where? And it, you know, it got to be this panic mode of, but they couldn't find any of us because all of us were at this one guy's house in, <laughs> in incarnation. Um, and uh, by the time they got a hold of us, there was, you know, all this, uh, rigmarole around it. And I'm like, Oh, so, so I call Ernst and it's now noon. I was supposed to be there at like eight or something. And I call him. I'm like, Oh yeah, sorry. I should have called. I'm not feeling well, <laughs> you know, even, <laughs> even though I was totally fine, but I was just, I was, I just didn't want to go to work. And, and he just starts yelling at me, which I think I deserved. You know, I mean, he, yeah. he's he's saying you should have called in earlier. Uh, we kind of depend on everybody coming in, and this is really disrespectful. And you know, and I'm agreeing with it. You know, I'm I'm feeling pretty bad about it. He's yelling at me, and then I I had this flash of going into work the next time and having everyone hate me, uh. and so I just said, "Yeah, I quit." <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you didn't want to suffer the consequences any further. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So this is the, the bad side of quitting the irresponsible 18 year old version of quitting. And uh, I don't know. I just, I, I always think about that moment because I, it was, uh, again, I had the privilege to quit. I didn't need the job. It was mainly for, you know, uh, going to McDonald's or gas mm-hmm. money or something, but it felt really good. I'll tell you, like to have someone just being just yelling at you f- because you deserve to be yelled at. And then this to say, yeah, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to have the quitting spirit over overcome you in the, in the moment. Right. <laughs> right. The quitting spirit overcame you. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever regret that? No, I, I, I never, ever. Yeah. Regretted it. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, regrets are a big, a big um, question I ask everyone that I interviewed for the book. You know, like every, like the, the book is a collection of stories, you know, like uh, real stories of um, people's quitting stories. And, um, and I ask every single person, you know, like, do you have any regrets? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, people are like, no. And they're like, oh, wait, and I wish I'd quit earlier. I wish I hadn't uh-huh. played so long, you know, and, um, and it's pretty amazing. I mean, there's um, any number of trade-offs that people accepted with their decision to quit. You know, I, uh, one, one very extreme um, example comes to mind of this, this woman who decided to quit being a doctor, you know, and, um, and it, it, as a near direct result of that, um, her husband left her. And she and her kids were living in her car for months on end. You know, she was literally homeless. And and even this woman says, I, I don't regret it. I don't regret my decision to quit, you know. And, um, yeah, so I think it's just it's really impressive to learn just, like, all these things that we think are so risky, you know, can end up just being still good decisions for us. Like, we would we would gladly take those trade-offs, you know. And, and yet other people I spoke to, when they say, I wish I quit earlier, what got in the way sometimes is like, oh, what will people think? What will my parents think? You know, what will people say? And then they quit and they realized, oh my gosh, the sky didn't fall. (laughs) You know, like this was not as risky as I spent years thinking to myself it would be, you know? And um, so for many of those people who shared with me their first big quits, you know, for them, it really opened this like floodgate of like, oh, wow, I can have so much more choice in my life now that I've kind of gotten that big quit out of the way and understood that I'm still here. I'm still standing, you know, and the people who love me still love me. Yeah. yeah. Before I get any emails, I, I know that you and I uh, understand this uh, fundamental idea of responsible living, which involves making sure that you're providing for your kids and, and mm. that sort of thing. And that you don't just quit a job because you don't like it, that you think ahead and make mm-hmm. sure that you're, you're doing it. Cause, cause I'm, I'm guessing a minority of people are thinking, well, you're not supposed to just quit a job when you don't like <laughs> a job and then you can't pay for the bills for your children. I mean, that, that's a thing, yes, which yeah. of, of course, you know, I, I think we, we understand when, when you were writing the book, did it have anything to do with your divorce? Yeah, really, really good question. And and the answer is, is no, you know, like this, the idea for what would eventually become a book was with me for years, you know, like even before the marriage started going south. And so um, I think it was really just a funny coincidence that, <laughs> that I, um, because I got rid of my husband, I had this opening in my life to kind of give my time and my emotions and my thoughts over to a creative endeavor. And this is also during the pandemic, you know? And so I, I began writing the book last June and um, yeah, so I think it was more just a coincidence, you know, but I, but I do look back on it as, as kind of confirmation that getting divorced was the right decision for me, because I think back and I'm just like, there's no way I could have written a book if I had remained married to that person, you know, there was just no way. Um, because I, I would not have been supported, you know, um, or like well, given, it, yeah, given the time. Yeah. It, it seems like, again, uh, as, as a occasional author myself, mm-hmm. I wonder, it, you know, you can feel free to say no, but hmm. that 
so you so you, you decided to get divorced and then you wrote the book, right? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it was writing the book at least partially motivated by uh, reassuring yourself that you made the right choice. Not really. No, I don't think I ever doubted that I made the right choice. I, mm-hmm. I think maybe the act of writing the book probably just confirmed, like reconfirmed it for me. You yeah. know, because I, I mean, I went into writing the book with like obviously just my own impressions of how good quitting can be, you know, mm-hmm. and, and mainly inspired by my career pivots, you know. Um, uh, but in, in talking to like nearly 40 happy quitters, I think that definitely did help me kind of put a finer point on why divorcing was a good choice for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's what I was suspecting because yeah. for me, I wrote a book on supervision and as I was writing the book, I kept thinking about the fact that I was fired from my first internship mm. job by my supervisor. So, mm. you know, this is 20 years, 25 years later, and I'm writing a book about good supervision and bad supervision. And I kept yeah. kind of thinking about my very first job as a therapist and how I was fired. And as you know, the book evolved and the manuscript evolved, I found myself kind of working in stories about that. And then after, at, by the end, the final draft, it was the first chapter was entirely about that first <laughs> yeah. experience. Because at least in part, I wanted to be a good supervisor and write a book about good supervision, caring supervision, responsible supervision, ethical supervision, evidence-based supervision, because of how horrible of an experience I had had, um, not only that time, but with other supervisors as well. And in writing the book, it definitely made me feel better about how I, uh, my conceptualization of what happened, you know, because being fired from my first internship, it was the natural conclusion when I was 25 years old was I'm a bad therapist. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I must be a terrible human being because of the way that it happened. And that's kind of stuck with me over time. But I, over time I kept, I don't think, I don't think I did anything wrong. I, I don't, I feel like that whole thing was not on me and was on them, but I'm not quite sure. And then as I'm writing the book, it it became more clear that that was true. (laughs) And and it gave me a lot of the fuel to not only finish the book, but also to put it out there into the world of, hey, people, if you don't experience, there's a difference between good supervision and bad supervision. And just because someone's a supervisor doesn't mean that they know what they're doing. It doesn't mean that yeah. they're not a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, my impression uh, going through like nonprofits and corporate environments alike as a full-time employee, you know, before I, I quit to start my own business has been like, you know, I feel like 99.9% of the things I learned from my managers was not, not what not to do. Right. <laughs> I learned very little about what to do, you know, and, um, but yeah, it's a real, it's a real like fallacy in any organizational culture that the next rung up has to be supervisor or managing of people. Cause like not everyone wants to do that. And I've done it and I, like to think I was good at it, but it takes a lot of effort to be good at it. And you have to care about being good at it. And not everyone is going to be like that. (laughs) Yeah. But, and I was wondering by writing this book, you know, I was just thinking similar to me that writing it helped not only conceptualize it and reassure, but also to spread the word to others that you might Mm. be worried might be you in the past stuck in that job trying Mm -hmm. to, 
um, keep yourself in a situation believing that suffering is what will be rewarded or that managers are good and can be trusted. And are you, are you trying to spread the word in that way? I, I really hope, hope so. Yeah. I, I hope that um, the book again, is like a, a small offering to the world to really just rethink and reframe how we think about quitting and to help people be like out and proud and courageous quitters. You know, I think, um, you know, a big reason why the book took the form of stories, uh, quitting stories is because we have so few of them, you know, people don't often share their stories of quitting or deciding against something because of the connotations of failure. Right. And, um, so my hope is that people will be inspired and motivated and empowered by the stories they do uh, read in the book, but then also be emboldened to make choices for their, themselves and share those choices with others. Great. Well, uh, tell us the full title of your book again and yeah. uh, your, your full name again so people can find it. Sure. Uh, my name's Kunor Bahal, and the book is I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up, and it is available on Amazon and also on Bookshop right now. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, and I, you, as soon as you're done, you could say, I quit being on the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I quit being on the Psychology in Seattle podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone out there, uh, please take care of yourself and quit if you want to, because you deserve it. You really, really do.